The end of Matthew's gospel is recorded for us the Great Commission. The Great Commission. That passage in which Jesus lays upon his disciples and all subsequent generations of disciples the mandate to go into the world and disciple the nations. Make them followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptizing them and teaching them all the things that Jesus had taught his original disciples. That mandate is further amplified and um, enforced, if you will, in the first chapter of the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 8, there at his ascension, just prior to returning to the right hand of the Father, Jesus speaks to his disciples. And he says to them in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, that they are to wait in Jerusalem and that once the Holy Spirit has come upon them at Pentecost, they were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. That was the strategy by which they were to go out and to make disciples of the nations. But they were slow to respond. They were slow to respond. It was, it was difficult for them to, to kind of get it in gear. Within Jerusalem itself, they were doing a pretty good job indeed. But the whole, you know, outside of Jerusalem and into Samaria and to the, to the remotest part of the earth thing, that took a while to catch on. And in fact, it uh, took several years and, and a significant event, and that was the stoning death of Stephen and the persecution that it brought upon the church to sort of launch them, get them out of the nest, and to begin to move out to the Gentile lands and to bring the gospel with them. It was, um, it was most perfectly done, if we can say it that way, through the very uh, unique uh, conversion and commissioning of the church's chief enemy, Saul, now known as Paul, right? Who had that incredible conversion on the road to Damascus on his way to persecute the believers. And then he becomes, by direct commission of the resurrected Christ himself, the apostle to the Gentiles. And he spends the next 30 years passionately moving the gospel directly out to the nations. And God blesses his effort with incredible success. And the church is born, and, and by the end of the first century, the church basically rings the Mediterranean all over the place. Primarily Gentile churches. Now, 2,000 2, years removed from that event is, is our day, right? And in our day, it's, it's hard for, for most of us to sort of recognize a, an important reality, an important fact. And that is that the gospel is inherently Jewish in both its origin and its meaning. It is inherently Jewish in both its origin and its meaning. The good news is that, is that Yahweh has extended the spiritual benefits of his ancient covenant with Abraham to the Gentiles, to, to us, through faith in the death, burial, resurrection, and future return of Israel's Messiah. 
Now, the reason that the Jewish nature of the gospel is so frequently overlooked is because for the vast majority of the Jews, they rejected that gospel message, and yet the Gentiles welcomed it with open arms and came pouring in when given the opportunity to believe. This environment of of Jewish unbelief and Gentile conversion, it's really easy to think in that kind of an environment that, that God has abandoned his ancient peoples, that they have been set aside, that they have been cast out. And to think that the the Gentiles have now taken over for them. That we have become what in Zechariah 2.8, referring to Israel as the very apple of God's eye. But nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. God still loves his ancient people. And in the book of Romans which represents Paul's most complete presentation of the gospel. And in fact, in in Romans chapter 16 and verse 25, he calls it my gospel. So if you want to know what Paul preached, it is there in the book of Romans. And there in that book of Romans, Paul devotes three chapters of the book to deal with the Jewish question. The Jewish question. And, And specifically... In the book, in those three chapters, he addresses three important issues, very important issues. The first issue that he addresses actually rolls out of the end of chapter 8 of Romans where Paul writes, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then the question that that naturally should occur is, what about Israel? What about Israel? In other words, God, if if you cannot hang on to your ancient people, those with whom you you made a covenant and and repeated it over and over again, If if you can't hang on to them, how can I, as a Gentile, be sure you'll hang on to me? I want to believe Romans 8, but the facts of history seem to, to go against it. And so Paul addresses that question. Furthermore, the Jewish question, as it were, concerns the, the difficulty of, of why did the majority of Israel fall away? Why did they disbelieve? Why did they refuse their Messiah when he came? The third issue that Paul addresses as part of the the Jewish question, is that which he could see in his day and and has become even further developed in our own, and and that is a a Gentile arrogance towards the Jewish people. The notion that that God has permanently rejected his ancient people, that he has has stripped them of her promises, their promises, and, and he has substituted the Gentiles in their place. How do you address such things? 
Well, Paul does it in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. And in Romans chapter 9, what Paul says essentially in that whole chapter is, is simply this. Not all the physical descendants of Abraham are true Jews. And it is God's secret election that determines which is which. Those whom he has chosen, those whom he has elected, he holds on to. Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 10, Paul addresses the, the issue of Jewish unbelief. And what he says is that all Israel had both opportunity and obligation to believe upon their Messiah, but they chose not to do it. Because they are disobedient and because they are an obstinate people. Chapter 10. Finally, chapter 11. Dealing with the issue of Gentile arrogance. And what Paul says there is that God has not abandoned his people. One day he will, he will bring them back. And the reason he will do so is because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Romans chapter 11. So he says to the Gentiles there in verse 18 of that chapter... Therefore, do not be arrogant. Do not be arrogant. Now, as we think about these things, I think it's important to, to add alongside that the, the words of Jesus spoken in John chapter 4 to the Samaritan woman, where he says to her, salvation is from the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews. They cannot be pushed aside. They cannot be separated out. The reality of all of this is, is driven home for us this morning in Matthew chapter 15. So I'll turn you there to Matthew chapter 15. This is the passage for us this morning, beginning in verse 21. Matthew chapter 15, verse 21 through 28. The outline this morning in this passage is not very complex at all. It's actually four words. It's a simple four-word outline. I give you these words. I'll give them to you in turn, one after the other. And they're simply there to kind of hang your thoughts on as we go through this Section. This is a very interesting interchange that goes on here in Matthew chapter 15, 21 to 28. It stands out, I think, in the Gospels as one of the most interesting interchanges. On the surface, hard to understand, even troubling. But let's start in verse 21, first word, reason. The first word is reason. What is the reason Jesus does what he does? Verse 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, last week we saw earlier here in the chapter, in chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, that, that there had been a confrontation 
between Jesus and a, and a group of scribes and Pharisees that had been sent from the capital city of Jerusalem up to Galilee in order to confront this itinerant rabbi and to, and to bring him to heal. And they had that very powerful uh, confrontation there. Of course, you remember they're asking him about ritual purity and he's accusing them of using their traditions to violate the word of God. And as you might imagine, it didn't go well. It didn't go well. At the, at the end, they didn't say, oh, wow, you're right, we missed it. It doesn't take a whole lot of sanctified imagination to, to assume there were, there were a lot of gnashing teeth and, and you know, eye daggers going out. And I would suggest even more than that, that they began to organize how they were going to get rid of this guy for good. So the temperature is, is high. The, the danger factor is great. And so Jesus leaves Israel. He leaves Israel. He, he goes away for a time. He does so in order to reduce the tensions. You've got a pot on the stove and the water is, is at a rolling boil. You turn the heat down or you move the, the pot to a different burner. And that's exactly what he does. Is it's time to get away. And it's time to, to get away to, to reduce the tensions. It's, it's still a year approximately be, before his time in Jerusalem and his crucifixion. And so he needs to manage the calendar, as it were, in that sense. And he wants time with his disciples. He needs to prepare his disciples for his departure and for them to take over his work. So he went away from there. That is, he went away from Galilee, and he withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, how long was he gone? Well, just putting together a, a few textual clues, it, it looks like he was gone actually for several months. That this was not just a, you know, a quick trip up and back. He was actually gone for, for several months, I think, and I'll show you why I think that. In uh, chapter 14 and verse 19, the feeding of the 5,000, there, he says, it, it says in the text that he ordered the people to sit down on the grass. You see that? Well, in Israel, the grass comes out in the spring. And here in uh, chapter 15 and verse 35, after he comes back from, from the region of uh, the district of Tyre and Sidon, he feeds another group. We'll get to it next week. It's a group of Gentiles. And he has them sit down as well. But verse 35, he directs those people to sit down on the ground. Sit on the grass, sit on the ground. Well, the ground would be what you'd have in summertime. In the spring, you have grass. In the summer, you have ground. That is, the grass is brown to the extent it still exists. So I suspect that he was gone for, for several months. Several months. He leaves Israel, and he travels to the region of Tyre and Sidon, the, the district of Tyre and Sidon, the place where Israel's enemies live. Ancient cities of Tyre and Sidon. These were the enemies of Israel. These are cities that, that lie on the Mediterranean coast north of, of Israel and the from the northern border of Israel to Tyre, about 30 miles, maybe 50, all the way to Sidon. So they are well outside of the, of the national boundaries and borders 
of ancient Israel. And in fact, they're outside of the borders of modern Israel. They lie in Lebanon. So Jesus clearly leaves his own country. He leaves his own country. And he travels to what was known as Phoenicia. Phoenicia, the place of Israel's ancient enemies. Why? Why? Well, he travels there because he knows that the Pharisees and the scribes who are worried about defilement from bread with unwashed, ceremonial unwashed hands and pots and pans that haven't been rinsed on the outside, there is no way they are, they are going into the defiled Gentile lands. And so he's sure that he will be alone. He's sure that he'll be alone. And it's interesting, Mark's uh, gospel, Mark 7, provides some additional uh, details here in a parallel account. And he, and he writes it this way, he says, Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre, and when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it. Yet he could not escape notice. So he, he travels there, and he actually stays in, in some sort of a house, some sort of lodging, and he's there with his disciples, and he's trying to be alone with them. And this trip outside of Israel sets the, the stage for, I think, one of, one of the most strange encounters that Jesus has. And, and, and if I can say it this way, one, one of the most strange ways for him to behave. Very difficult. Very unexpected. So he leaves. Second outline word, request. Request. So he's gone to a place where he's not known, supposedly. Verse 22, and a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Now, the Greek text includes a, just a little, little word, adu, in the, in the Greek. It's translated in the English, behold. ESV picks it up. The, the old New American Standard had it. The New American Standard didn't have it and wish they'd had it because it's important. It's a clue. It's the kind of word, when you see it in the text or when you would hear it read, it means that you're, you're supposed to wake up. So you're feeling a little drowsy, you know, they're, they're, they're um, recounting the story to you or they're reading the text to you and your eyes are feeling a little heavy and you're, if you don't wake up soon, you're going to fall out the window and die, okay? And Paul's not around to raise you back up. And you hear the word, behold, behold, wake up, pay attention, something unexpected is about to happen. A Canaanite woman is going to come up to him. A Canaanite woman is going to come up to him and say to him, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. A descendant of Israel's ancient enemies, the Canaanites, is going to come to Israel's Messiah and plead for a blessing. 
Pay attention. She's a Canaanite. She's a member of the, of the cursed race of the Canaanites, the one for whom God said they are to be completely destroyed. Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse 17. If you do not destroy them as you go into the land, God says, they will draw your hearts away. Israel did not destroy them, and their hearts were drawn away. The reason this stands out so much, I think, is because of her background, to be sure, as a, as a Canaanite woman. Further, by the way she, she approaches Jesus, or the terms of, of address that she uses him, she calls him Lord and Son of David. Son of David. Now, these are, this, this is true. These, this is who he is. But they are very, very unexpected titles in the mouth of one who is not part of the nation of Israel. In fact, it actually represents a, a pretty advanced knowledge, in one sense, of, of Jesus' person and his mission. And where, and where she got that knowledge, we don't know. But by, but by using these titles in reference to Jesus, she is putting herself in the position of a Jew asking for the blessing from Israel's Messiah, and that ought to make you sit up and take notice. A descendant of the cursed race, putting herself in the, in the same position as a, as a Jewish person, requesting from their Messiah that he have mercy upon her. That stands out. That stands out. So how will Jesus respond to her? What will the, the gentle healer do? Right? She says, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. She certainly has need. And he is, and he is a, a compassionate, merciful Savior. So what will he do? Third word of my outline, response. Response. Verses 23 to 27, actually, is the, is the response. It's the largest section of this little, um, this little narrative. And the way Jesus responds to, to this woman has puzzled many, many people over the centuries. It is a very puzzling sort of response. I'm sure it... it puzzled the disciples who were there to witness it. Because three times he rejects her. Three times he, he rejects her request. And, and not only does he reject her request, but, but he appears to treat her very harshly. Very harshly. And yet, this lady won't take no for an answer. She keeps coming back. She keeps coming back over and over and over again. He pushes her away. She comes on back. And in the process of, of this interchange, three times he rejects her, three times she comes back. And in that process, she, she sort of grows in her understanding of who he really is and the implications of what it means for him to be the Messiah of Israel. 
By the end of the account, her persistence pays off, and Jesus grants her request. But let's take a look at the interchange. Verse 23, the first rejection. But he did not answer her a word. Stop there. A Canaanite woman from that region came out, began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Jesus ignores her. He ignores her. I don't see a thing. I don't hear a thing. Now, this lady's need's real. This is a real, real need. Her daughter is cruelly demon-possessed, it says. There's an intensification of the effects of this, of this demonization. This, this poor child is, is being tormented, possibly even severely ill as a result of the, of the demonic possession of this child. This lady's need is absolutely great, and, and she calls out to Jesus, and you would expect Jesus to do something, and he ignores her. He ignores her. But she won't give up. She refuses to give up. Verse 23, And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. Very, very, very colorful picture here. The, the Greek construction indicates a, the continuous action that's going on. The, the woman is essentially following them around. She's behind them at this time, at this point, and wherever they go, they cannot get rid of her. Okay, you know, you know, down this alley, turn right here, turn left here, duck through the door, close the door quick, come out on the other side, and there she is. I mean, she is just following them everywhere they go. Calling, calling, calling. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me. She will not take no for an answer. And, uh, and the disciples, it's starting to get on their nerves. It's starting to get on their nerves. And so they, they want him to do something. Get rid of her. Send her away. Get rid of her. Now, I think the way the, the text goes here, I, th I think when they, when they want him to get rid of her, they want him to heal her and get rid of her. I don't think it's just that they want, her to just, they want him to just send her away. They want him to, to give her what she wants, give the poor lady what she wants, and get rid of her. The reason I, I believe that is, is his answer in verse 24 is an answer directed to the disciples, not to the woman. And implied in his answer is, is not uh, why he won't help her, but but why he won't send her, her away, uh, send her away. Or, I'm sorry, said the other way. <laughs> oh, well. His answer is, he answers not why he doesn't send her away, but why he won't help her. That's a better way to put it. So I think they want him to, they want him to heal her. They want him to grant her requests. Listen, he grants requests all the time. Right? Back at the, uh, at the end of chapter 14, he's there in the area of Gennesaret, and, uh, and they send word in the surrounding district, and they bring out all the sick, and they implore him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. As many as touched it were cured. 
So that's sort of his standard operating procedure. You know, you don't even have to touch him anymore. Just get near him, touch his clothes, and you're good. So just give this lady what she wants. Get rid of her. She's driving us crazy. But he rejects again. Verses 24 and 25. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus heal her and send her away. And he says, nope. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's a fascinating statement. Listen, Jesus came into this world to accomplish many, many things. Many things. But first and foremost, it was to offer to his own people the kingdom of David that had long been prophesied. 2 Samuel chapter 7 speaks of Messiah's kingdom and the promise to David. And Jesus came into this world to fulfill that promise, to fulfill that commitment to bring the kingdom to his ancient people. And in his grace, at this time, even though it is apparent that the nation is not ready to receive their king, that they are spurning him, Every opportunity, they want only the benefits of his kingdom without the, the, the entrance fee, which is to repent and, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is still in his mercy, continuing to prolong the, the exclusiveness of his offer of that kingdom to Israel if she'll repent. It's still her kingdom, and it's still her exclusive opportunity to receive it. He looks on his people with with love. He looks on his people with mercy. He looks on his people with tenderness. He calls them sheep, right? I was sent only, verse 24, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Verse 26, he calls them children. This is his approach. Now one day, one day the, the mission will be enlarged. One day it will, it will come out to the Gentiles and, and directly offer to them the opportunity to enter into the kingdom following Pentecost. Following Pentecost. But even then, it will still be, in the, in the words of the Apostle Paul, the gospel, which is the power of God to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. And then also to the Greek. It is always to the Jew first. It is a Jewish gospel. So he rejects her a second time. He explains to his disciples, listen, why do I ignore her? Because she's outside of my mission. She's outside my mission. Now at this point, the woman, she's desperate. She is desperate. And so verse 25, she came and began to bow down before him. She fell at his feet. She prostrated herself. The the word is uh, is used that describes worship. She bows at his feet in worship. She says, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Notice she drops, by the way, the messianic title. The whole son of David thing, that's just gone. 
Now she just cries out. She cries out in anguish. The kind of anguish, I think, that, that can only originate in a mother's heart whose, whose child is, is so terribly afflicted. She cries out like a mother. Surely Jesus will save her now, right? Surely he will, will grant her request. Surely he will have mercy on this child. How can he refuse a mother falling at his feet? He rejects her again. He rejects her again. Verse 26. He answered and said, It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. How does that strike you? How does that hit your ear? Seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? Seems kind of unfeeling, uncaring. Where's the compassion and all that? Shocking, actually. It's a shocking sort of statement. I mean, it, it, it grinds on our, on our ears and our, and our modern sensibilities. And by the way, Jesus does that. You ever notice that as you, you sort of read through the Gospels? There'll be, there'll be a, an encounter, and he will respond in, in some of the most rude ways by what is, we would consider to be sort of common uh, courtesies, right? He gets invited over for dinner at a Pharisee's house, and, and uh, you know, he's sitting there at, at dinner, and, uh, and he tells the dinner host, hey, by the way, you never washed my feet. You know, he just, he just confronts people. And so here to this, that this woman, she is in agony. She has been following them around maybe for days. He's ignored her, he, you know, and she, and she won't be put off. And she comes and she, she falls at his feet in worship and she, she clings to him and she says, please, have pity on me. He says, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. In the ancient uh, world, and even in the world today, in certain parts of the world, uh, dogs are scavengers. They're scavengers. They're, they're, they're wild. And, they're, and they are not what you want to have hanging around. But even in the ancient world, they would domesticate some. Dogs are domesticatable or and so, and so there were some domesticated dogs, and, and those were used to guard people's homes and, and things like that. And actually, there are, there are two different Greek words that are used for dogs. There is the, the, a word that's used for the wild scavenger kind of dog, and then there's a word that's used for the domesticated dog. And here, Jesus uses the word for the domesticated dog. So doesn't that make you feel better? He answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the house dogs. Interesting, he, uh, he kind of uses what, what is um, common terminology of that time. The Jews called the Gentiles dogs. 
They called them dogs, and it was an insult. And they referred to each other as the children of God. And here Jesus takes this, um, I think he takes this insult and he, he actually turns it into a proverb. He turns it into, into sort of a, of a proverb. And it's designed to, to draw out a deep truth. The Jews are in a position of right and privilege. They are the children. The bread represents here the kingdom blessings. The kingdom blessings. Kingdom blessings for which the Gentiles at this time cannot hope to share. There's a, there's a separation between them. The Jewish people are, are the children And it would, it would not be right, it would not be good, it would not be, be the honorable thing to do to take away the blessings from the children and to give them to those who are outside of the nation. It's just not a good thing to do. It's not appropriate, it's not proper. It's not good to take children's bread, throw it to the dogs. Now that brings us face to face with a mystery, don't you think? This is out of character. Wouldn't you agree? This is very much out of character for, for the Jesus that we think we know. So something has to be going on here, and indeed, something is going on. And I think the best way to, to unravel the mystery is we, is we need to remember that this encounter occurs prior to Jesus' crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and ascension back to the right hand of the Father. This is pre-cross. Pre-cross. What that means is Jesus is still actively pursuing his mission of offering the earthly Davidic kingdom to the nation of Israel upon the condition of their repentance and receiving him as their Messiah. If they will do that, his kingdom will come. And as long as he is involved actively doing that, then the priority is the Jewish people. Now, Gentiles could receive some of the blessings, but only as they entered in through Judaism. Only as they enter in through Judaism. They cannot receive the blessing and remain Gentile in their orientation. Now, God is patient. He is very, very patient, and, and he has been patient here with his ancient people. They have rejected him many, many times, but he is still offering the kingdom to them. And it's going to be a year before the offer is widened to include the Gentiles. Till that time, till that time, Jesus is still about the Father's work. And he is still about the Father's work, which is offering the kingdom to the nation of Israel. Essentially what Jesus is telling her here is that the Messiah belongs to Israel and she is not part of Israel. Israel. 
Is she going to go away? Nah. She's not going to go away. In fact, she, she is going to respond with, with, the, with the most incredible insight and humility. Verse 27. But she said, yes, Lord. I, I agree. Yes, Lord. But even the, the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Oh, I love this. She acknowledges that she is dependent upon the blessings which flow from Israel as the chosen people. They are the recipients of the covenant of promise. And she takes Jesus' metaphor and she, and she does a little spiritual jujitsu and flips it back on him. I mean, it's really cool. I'm not going to say that he was bested by her, but, but it really pretty amazing, the, the insight and the humility of it all, to take this and, and to just flip it back around. So she does that. She, she flips it on him, and, and she requests his mercy. Now, instead of a child, instead of one who was entitled to the blessing, instead she says, I... I'm a dog, okay. But even dogs get the scraps that fall off the table. Be merciful to me. I'm not asking for it all. Just give me a little. The basis by which Jesus rejects her plea becomes the very basis on which he now grants it. Isn't that amazing? And takes us to the result. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Her daughter is healed at once. Jesus marvels over this woman's faith. This is incredible. It certainly reminds one of, uh, of earlier in Matthew, chapter 8. Remember the, the Gentile centurion whose slave was, was ill, and he comes to Jesus, and, and he says, listen, I understand all about authority and, and pecking order and so forth, and you know, just say the word. That's all it'll take. And Jesus said, I have never seen such great faith in Israel. He marvels over that man's faith. Here he marvels again over this woman's Incredible faith and her, and her insight into the whole situation. And he grants her request. Immediately. Completely. Long distance. He heals her child. Mark reports it this way. Mark 7, verse 30. Going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left her. Jesus gives her what she asked for. What do we do with it? What do you do with this account? How do we apply it? Well, there's a few ideas for you. First, forget about bargaining with God. Okay? We don't, we don't bargain with God. You have nothing to offer him. 
You have, you have nothing to offer him. Her original approach is all the wrong approach. We don't offer him our social status. We don't, we don't offer him our, our accomplishments. We don't, we don't offer him our, our backgrounds. We have nothing. Empty hands. We, don't even, we can't even approach him with our need and force him. All we can do is, is throw ourselves upon his mercy. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. That's all there is. So we throw ourselves on him. Desperate, dependent, waiting for his mercy. Secondly, when I read this kind of a passage here, it, it makes me think about Ephesians chapter 2. It, it takes me to Ephesians chapter 2, and so I'm going to take you there as well. In particular, verses 11 through 13. Because praise God for his mercies. We live on the other side of the cross. We live, we live in, the, in, the, in the time in which God is now allowing Gentiles to, to enjoy the spiritual blessings of Abraham's covenant. This is the way Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, he's writing to Gentiles here. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's a bad place to be. A bad place to be. In the next two words, I think, you know, it ought to be highlighted, circled, underlined in your Bible, stars next to them, whatever. I mean, it, this is an amazing. But now, this was who we were. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Listen, we are, for the vast majority of us here, Gentiles. That means that we are former pagans. That is, our, that is our heritage. Those are our ancestors. Absolutely cut off from the God of Israel, without hope in the world, completely separate, in darkness. And God, in his great mercy in Christ, has drawn us near. He has drawn us near. And that ought to motivate us to praise and glorify Christ. Third, I'm struck by this woman's faith. I don't see how you can read this account and not be. Jesus certainly was. Oh, woman, great faith. That's a commendable thing in the eyes of God. Great faith. Very commendable thing. You know, and it, it sort of occurs to me, I was thinking about this this morning, that, that um, just thinking about, as I read the New Testament, those who are spoken of, uh, either directly or, or by implication, as having great faith, are all Gentiles. It's really interesting. 
I mean, there's clearly the, here in Matthew 8, you know, the, the, the centurion and the, and the whole thing where Jesus said, I've never seen faith like that in Israel, right? Implied, Israel should have faith like that, but they don't. It's a, it's a Gentile, it's a foreigner, it's someone who's outside, has no hope, no promise, no covenant. And, and here in this woman, same thing. She's outside, she's actually a Canaanite, I think about John chapter 4 and, and, and the confrontation, not a confrontation, the meeting uh, at the well with the Samaritan woman and Jesus, right? I mean, that was so amazing, so unlikely, and yet she becomes this, this passionate evangelist and, and she, she gets her whole community, her whole village to come out and, and see him. Really amazing. I think, about, I think about Acts chapter 16 and, and verse 30 and the, and the Philippian jailer. And he says, what must I do to be saved? I'm convinced. Great faith is a commendable thing. A commendable thing in the eyes of God. By implication, we should be a people of great faith. We should be a people of great faith. I think last, so I just thinking about it this week, is, um, is being reminded again that God has not abandoned his ancient people. He has not abandoned his ancient people. In Romans chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. Absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, Paul says. Beloved, that's not just then, that's now. God has not rejected the Jewish people. They are living in open hostility to their God. They are obstinate. They are disobedient. They prohibit the gospel to be preached among them. And yet God has not abandoned them. We, the Gentiles, have not taken their promises. They have not been transferred to us. The blessings of the Abrahamic covenant have not been stripped from Israel and somehow given to us and, and they're out in the cold. Absolutely not. God in his mercy and grace has allowed us as Gentiles to have a, a piece of the blessing promised to Abraham through faith in Israel's Messiah. And, and in that we rejoice. But listen, the day is coming. The day is coming when Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns, he will establish the kingdom that he came the first time to offer to his people. And all Israel will be saved, Paul says in Romans 11 and verse 26. That means that Jewish evangelism and Jewish church planting remains a priority for us. It remains a priority. It is hard work, but it is a gospel priority. It is the power of God for the Jew first, and then also for the Greek, and we never Never, ever should forget that. I'm reminded of Psalm 122 in, in verse 6, 
where the psalmist says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. When will Jerusalem have peace? Answer, when Messiah returns and not until. When Messiah returns. We are commanded to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. What we are really being commanded to do is pray for the return of Christ. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That needs to be our prayer. That needs to be our prayer. Our Father, the scriptures are very, very clear that you have not abandoned your ancient people. And we as Gentile believers, even though we make up the majority of the church today, must never fall prey to the, to the deception and the arrogance of thinking that somehow the natural branches that have, been, that have been snapped off can never be grafted in again. Our Father, we need to remember that, that we stand by grace and that to the extent we inherit the promises to Abraham, they are only by grace through faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray, our Father, that, that you would send your Son soon. That he would snatch his church to be with him in, in heaven. That he would pour out upon this earth the, the terrible judgments that have been predicted. That he might bring an end to the kingdoms of this world who live in open defiance of him. That he might crush his stubborn and obstinate people and bring them to the place where they will no longer look to themselves or look to man or, or look to Gentile powers to defend them, but they will look to you. That they will call out on the one whom they have pierced. And Father, we pray for the return in glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maranatha, come quickly. Amen.